All right, this week on the All-American Podcast, we have three-time All-American, world top 25, UK number one, Big Ten Penn Relays record holder, and Penn Relay champion, Greg Thompson. Oh, just can't be bothered. Good time, good time. All right, today we have one of the all-time greats, I would say, to ever face the NCAA and much of mainland Europe, uh, Greg Thompson. How you doing, Greg? Far too kind and a bit elaborate, but um, I appreciate it nonetheless. Thank you for having me. No problem, no problem anytime. So I'm um, going to jump straight into it. Uh, how did you get into track? What was your kind of foray into the sport? Uh, so my dad, Neville Thompson, um, good old hashtag, what would Neville do, um, was an international in his day. Um, so I just kind of essentially was born into the sport. Um, as soon as I could walk, I was running out with him to the fields, trying to throw his disc back. And eventually he played ball and just kind of made me like this small little makeshift disc. out of a bit of foam and some plastic that could hold a bit of weight. So it would actually like stabilize. Um, and yeah, I was hooked. That was it. Um, I started rotating at five after begging him to teach me the full technique for like two years. <laughs> um, I actually remember that quite vividly as well and started competing at seven. So yeah, I just basically the bulk of all I've ever known. That's awesome. That's awesome. So you said you started competing when you were very young. How does competition in the U, well, I guess it's all of Europe, work? Because I know they have like a, it's like what, U14, 16, 18, 20, and then 23 is like juniors, right? Something like that? Kind of. So um, the, the world circuit runs predominantly the under 18, under 20, the under 23 somewhat, but it's more of a European thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I mean, I guess you guys have Pan Ams and NACAX and everything like that as well. And then um, seniors. But in Britain, we kind of run our own unit and then it matriculates into that. So it'll go under 13s, 15s, 17s. And then those with an under 18 year under their belt will then have that. And then they will jump into the under 20s, the 23s, and then the seniors. Gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. Yeah. So... How was how was that transition? Not that it's a transition, but how did? Let me wear that definitely. Did you start off doing very well, or was it kind of a struggle for you to pick up as a child? Um, I mean, I'm not the biggest guy. Like, it's, I'm only six feet tall, um, so it kind of was a slow and steady builder. Um, I, I realized some some many years after the fact that as an under thirteen. I think I was ranked ninth in the UK at the time. Um, I mean, it's not really that, that big of a deal, but like when you when you first kind of realize what like a rankings website is and everything like that, there's that initial mm-hmm. buzz, and you're like, oh my god, like I'm ranked, like oh this is lit. Um, so yeah, I I've I've always kind of been okay, but never anything just straight off the bat like you know a prodigy. I feel yeah. like in terms of certain distances certain performance markers that would get the world, you know, buzzing and being like, oh, like, this is Greg, like, you know, he's going to be one to look out for. But I've always just crept on, crept on. Um, I'm one of the fortunate ones, like, every single year of my career where I've actively, like, had a full season. I've, I've thrown a PB. Like, I've never stagnated. I've never fallen mm-hmm. off. Um, and hopefully I can continue that into the next couple of years. 
start dropping, you know, some some real bombs. Um, yeah, I like to say, yeah. But yeah, no, I, I wouldn't say by any means that I've had a real like kind of star-studded career. I think it's just been mm-hmm. very, very, very methodical. But progress is progress, and you know, I'm fortunate enough to be on the right side of that. So that's good. So where are you? Because I know for a while you were in Florida somewhere training. Where are you training at now? So I was at Tallahassee, uh, Florida State, for two months, um, two slash three, and then actually went to New Jersey for the remainder of my trip. So I left in March. I think I went to Jersey sometime around June, um, and I stayed in Jersey uh, until like first week of August. And then I had to obviously come back. My travel visa had expired. And um, uh-huh. the U.S. were no longer accommodating to my needs. Um, so, yeah, I came back. Um, and then obviously following quarantine period, isolation and that stuff, I've just been at home uh, in London. Um, only just started getting back into training now. Uh, yeah, so that's it. Basically where, I've, where I grew up training um, in northwest London is where I'm training currently. Gotcha, so gotcha. just taking it right back to the roots and just building from there. Mm-hmm. So, you said you're training at it's basically the place where you started training, correct? Yes. So, what are the training facilities like? Not the training facilities. I would say, what's track like in? I guess for you it would be the UK, but like Europe in general, because obviously you've been you were here for what five, four or five years, right? Yeah, give or take. Yeah, four or five yeah years. and. Obviously, you know we have football, and football is like breath to half of America. So, what is is track the same way there it is here, or is it different? Like, I mean, it's it's kind of different. Like, America is a whole continent. I mean, like the United States is practically a continent. I mean, obviously, not to exclude the rest of whatever's all up there, but you know, you, the UK is such a small piece of the puzzle with regards uh-huh. to Europe. Um, so there are so many, if, if you look at Europe as, as the culture, every country is its own unique subculture. Um, so it honestly depends on where you go. They have a, uh, an, a like a, what's the word? I don't even remember the word, but basically where, wherever you go, they have a certain preference. Preference. Mm-hmm. Um, like if you, you know, if you go to like Germany, like throws pop off. You know, if you go to Poland, throws kind of pop off. There's certain nations, just from a throwing standpoint, that like really take on all the events and have a love and adoration for them. The UK specifically is its own kind of subculture, is rather bleak, I would say. I think that the thing is, is that there's such a good potential to, to build the profile of track and field athletics in the UK. I just don't think we're there yet with the right marketing strategies and, and the right profile mm-hmm. of athletes. And the, and the exposure necessary. Um, because again, like, you know, America kind of blows their socks off. Like, yes, football is like the predominant event. But track and field, like, in the right circles is, is very popular uh, in America. Um, if, if you compare that to the UK, like, the UK is just very bleak. It's just very quiet, very empty. You know, our, our British champs are typically... <laughs> There's kind of like a running joke that, like, the the seating in British champs this year with COVID and everything going on was basically a reflection of British champs for like the last decade. Uh-huh. It's just fairly empty for the most part. Um, you don't really get that great of attendance. But then if you go to other places in the, you know, in Europe, 
it, it can challenge the kind of buzz and atmosphere that you have in, in the Americas. Um, so, yeah, I, I'm not really like a European expert, although I have traveled quite a lot. But at the same time, it's just like, depending on where you go, there's varying levels of, of support, mm-hmm. interest. Yeah. Um, yeah, obviously, I'll say most people who know track, like Eugene is like, is the mecca of track and field, at least collegiately in the United States. I mean, for them, track basically is football. If you look, every meet Oregon has there, or if it's USA's or when the Diamond League's there every, what is it, like every September, they're in like, they're every summer, like August or September, somewhere around there. Stadium is absolutely packed. Like, it's it's crazy. So, how did you make the transition from being, from going from, like, high, I guess it would be high school age, so, like, 13 to 18, and then making the decision, okay, I'm going to go xyz thousand miles across the ocean to maryland like what was your drive for that um i kind of go where the wind takes me <laughs> uh, i don't really home's kind of where you hang your hat and i can't really wear a hat big hair so. Definitely. <laughs> so, um, for me it was just i think from that like american high school age by the time I was 18, I realized, like, okay, you know, throwing 60-plus with the 2Ks is going to be a matter of when, not if. Yeah. Mm-hmm. 65 pretty much will probably follow the same suit. Um, and, and I had a bit of American attention, but nothing too drastic at that point. Mm-hmm. The 18th year going 19th, I decided I wasn't sure what I was going to do, where I was going to go, but obviously track and field was the jam, so... I took a, a gap year from full-time education and I just said, well, you know, we're just going to focus on trying to get my first international cap for GB. Um, and just, I worked full-time. And then off the back of that, I got some really good offers. Just kind of was one of the top top five to top 10 or something like that in the world as an under 20 uh, in the disc. And I was also UK number one shot putter as a junior at the time, throwing a six kilo, 14 pound. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, not many people know that, <laughs> especially like, especially in America, because I never really threw shot. Um, so, getting those kinds of offers was just like, oh, this is another avenue. British universities weren't really that appealing to me. Um, it, it just things weren't adding up, mm-hmm. and I was like, well, you know, I'm not really gonna just sit here and continue to just work, live paycheck to paycheck unnecessarily when I can get a good opportunity to kind of go spread my wings and try something different Um, and just get that kind of American experience. My dad had always said to me one thing that he wished he could have done when he was growing up was get an American scholarship and go out there and just get that kind of flavor. Mm -hmm. Um, So I was like, oh, well, I mean, I might as well try that and just see how it goes. I mean, I've got nothing to lose. Like I said, the, the under 23 contingent, of like world athletics isn't really that prolific. Mm-hmm. I don't think there's near enough opportunity for under 23s, uh, especially in the throws. Like you're making transitions from junior to senior implements. Like for some, that can be a very long process. No, yeah. And it's very difficult in a European contingent to get that kind of exposure to good level competition that frequent. 
Um, so it just made sense to put myself in a in an environment where I knew dudes were dropping sixties consistent. And I was like, all right, cool. Like you know, I'll, I'll hang with them for a year, maybe two, and then at some point, something's going to take over, and you know, I'll start throwing some big numbers out there, and and hopefully mix as, as the best in the nation. Um, and yeah, that that was kind of how that happened. Um, Maryland just kind of just came by way of the process. They weren't the first to to express interest. Actually, <laughs> funny enough, they were the last. Um, and just my whole kind of recruitment uh, process actually took two to three years. It was a whole whole riffraff of, of issues. Um, and again, I had no one in my corner. I didn't have like a representative or anyone with collegiate experience in my corner kind of like guiding me or showing me the way. So I kind of had to just really figure it all out by myself. And, you know, you get some collegiate coaches that just try and take advantage of, you mm-hmm. know, unsuspecting youth who don't know any better, especially like me, I'm an international. Like, all right, we speak the same language, but your philosophy and your, your way of operating as a business is, is totally different to anything yeah. I've ever experienced. So you, you kind of, I kind of learned through painful experience, kind of the, the do's and don'ts of the NCAA and, when it was all said and done, kind of Maryland and maybe one other institution was kind of on offer. And I was just like, all right, well, you know, DC's a bit more familiar to me. I, I feel like I'd be in a little bit better company and, you know, I can help promote a program that when I got there had very little to no love. No one really kind of knew about them. My sophomore year, when I kind of broke out and dropped the 60, everyone was like, you know, oh, yeah, we heard about this kid from Maryland, you know, he's. Got an Afro's from London, blah, blah, blah. But where's Maryland? And, like, for me, that was just really absurd. I, I, I was just like, oh, I, to be fair, like, I even didn't know it was a state. That's how bad it was. Like, I'd never heard of Maryland before. You hear of D.C., but, like, you don't hear Maryland. You hear Virginia, yeah. you hear mm-hmm. New Jersey. But, like, Maryland is just, like, one of those just unknown blips on the radar. So, for me, it was like, all right, this is a good opportunity for me to to put, you, you know, Maryland and UMD on the map. So, I took it. That's awesome. I want to backtrack to something real quick. She said you threw, you were really, you were good with the 6K when you were, what, 16, you said? 18. 18. 18, 19. Yeah, I had, um, I was UK number one in 2013, indoor and outdoor national champ. I had thrown somewhere around 60 feet with the 14. Um, I didn't even train for the event. It was just something I did for fun. Mm-hmm. Um, me and me and my boy at the time, the UK number one and two, and it was just something else to do. It it kind of for me helped my discus throwing. Um, but again, I just kind of competed with it. I was like, all right, you know, this is where I'm at with my discus technique. I'm in a smaller ring. This is kind of what I want to emulate, and this is what I want to achieve. And then just flick and implement at the end of it that way, rather than you know with an arm extended. Yeah. So. It, to me, it just kind of was like a second nature thing. I didn't. Maybe I should have taken it a bit more serious, and, and who knows, I could have probably thrown a lot further with it. But then, off the back end of that year, I dropped a ton of weight, lost about sixty pounds in six weeks. I went through a bit of a health crisis, and um, I, I remember obviously we make that transition from a fourteen pound to a sixteen, whereas you guys will go from a twelve to a sixteen. Mm-hmm. But even still, I'd lost all that weight. I could like you know just lost condition. And I remember, like, the first day I kind of, like, got up out of bed and everything was ready to kind of, like, 
attempt at living again. <laughs> and I had a, a 16 pound as a doorstop and I physically couldn't pick it up with one hand. I, I just couldn't grab hold of the ball. And all my confidence in the shot just completely like diminished. So it, it took me a while to be like, all right, you know what? Like the hunger's kind of there again. And I'm starting to realize the way in which it will benefit my discus throwing. Mm -hmm. Last year in the winter, my senior year uh, at Maryland was, was kind of a, I was able to kind of retouch base with shot. I didn't really throw it that far in competition or anything like that, but I did manage to drop like, like 57 feet a couple times with 16 in training. So I was like, all right, you know, this is, you know, a significant margin for some three, four, five feet further than I've ever thrown. This bodes well for throwing the 2K uh, in the collegiate season. So I would like to be able to start picking up the shot again, maybe get close to 60, 60 plus feet this year, even if it's just in training. You know, for me, the performance indicators are all that matter. And that will show me that I'm, I'm in good nick to, you know, doing something filthy with the disc as and when time mm -hmm. comes. So, yeah. Because I've, I've had this debate with a lot of both coaches and collegiate throwers that in the collegiate and professional realms, a discus thrower will throw a shot put better than a shot put thrower will throw a discus. And I've had I've been saying this probably since my freshman year that I the only my only <laughs> exception would be Krauser because Krauser's six seven and like thirteen thousand kilograms like he's he can he could pick up a car if he wanted like I I think I I honestly. This is going to be very outlandish, and I can't believe I'm saying this on a podcast. But um, I think Krause is actually a better discus thrower than he is a shot put. I would, I would honestly, I've been thinking that for a long time that if he picked the discus up, I think he could go seventy in a matter of like months. Just he just he just off. has the thing is is is, is a shot shot circle is is so confined, mm -hmm. and he's so larger than life, and it's if if you take you take what he's able to accomplish in a shot ring. He's so big that he can afford patience and yeah. finesse. And the thing is, he, he generates a speed that mimics the best in the world. Well, he is the best, but still, like, you know, his his peers, his colleagues, he's still matching that speed, but with just a level of finesse and timeliness that is perfect for discus rhythm. Yeah. And, you, you know, once you know how to throw a disc ball, you don't lose it. He's already thrown, like, 61 63 with a 2k mm -hmm. like he probably he dropped he dropped a training video like last year and oh, he I definitely went like 60, 60 some meters and made it effortless and it's like all it all it takes is one solid year of of semi semi decent commitment you know once a week that's all it'll take and and no doubt he'll he'll be a well over 65 70 is a bold bold statement but i i think he does definitely have what it takes to throw 70 um He's just a specimen, yeah. And I, I just, I just think discus throwing is, is so much easier than shot putting, fundamentally. Yeah, I, for me. Put. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think we both know that I don't like shot put. Yeah. I think we've all. seen. I think we've seen that you don't like throwing shot put. Um, yeah. But yeah, no. I, yeah, Kraus, Kraus, I think Kraus is a discus thrower who mastered shot putting, and, and the joke is, is I, I think he. I think he's probably got like another meter or so in him. I don't doubt it at all. He's got he's got a little bit. He's got some juice left in the tank. He can. It's crazy. Like I, my whole my whole career, like I kind of always been told, like you know, Greg, you lack aggressiveness. You know, you're such a rhythmic thrower and blah blah blah. And it's all beautiful and pretty and everything, but like, where's the grit gonna come from? 
And like, I've always felt like I expressed that through my rhythm. So like, I would be the last person to say this, but I feel like Krause is holding back. <laughs> it looks like he's, yeah, sometimes, is it? Yeah, it, it, just, it. it just looks like he knows he's in a shit predicament. Like, are we allowed to swear on here? Sorry, my bad. It, dude, it's all audio. You're all good. Don't make, it doesn't make a difference. I feel, I feel like he's in a very, it's like he's aware that he's in a very tight circle. And he's like, oh, I've got to deal with this crap. Like, if you, if you put him in a discus circle and got him to throw a shot, oh, my goodness. He would fly. Curtains. It'd be game over. Um, so, yeah, it just there's part of me that always feels like he's holding back. But I know he's, well, I don't know anything, but I, I feel as though he is doing his best each year to find out how to increase his economy in, in such a confined space. Mm-hmm. And he's doing it well. I mean, he's making, you know... I was literally just saying to someone the other day, like, we remember when Big Nelly and, and Hoffer and the rest of them were dropping 22s. I was like, oh, crap. Like, that, you know, that's the dog's bollocks. And here, like, now, he drops a 22-5, and we're like, oh, come on, like, what is that? Yeah. Like, he's doing exactly. better than that. <laughs> you know, like, 22-5 came fourth at a world final. Like, yeah. just deep it is, it's different. Um, you know, 22-7 for him now is his average day. He said like twenty two seventy four, like twice this season, three times yeah. this season, and a twenty two nine to boot. And we know he's thrown the twenty three plus. He's broken the world record in training. He has definitely. But it's just like that. That kind of consistency, like, is sickening. And it's like shots. Shots the one event that's not as, you know, affected by the element. Yeah. So if he's mm. doing this, it's just a matter of when. Yes. Again, not if. You know, he doesn't need a sick wind or a bit of fortune here or there. Just needs it to be a little bit dry for him to be switched on, and you know it's just a case of how far over the record will he go. Yeah, exactly. But yeah, I, I, discus throwing is so much easier than than shot putting. That's not to say it's it's not difficult, but it's it's difficult to conceptualize. But then once you once you learn it, you realize just how easy it is. Mm-hmm. Like discus throwing is so simple. It's just you create circles along a linear line, a straight line. And then just, you know, project that into a delivery. It's just about how well you can accelerate in control, get from point A to point B, and just let the body, you know, just be a, the elastic band, the driving force of just an extension of your arm. It's really not that hard. <laughs> like, I, I feel like I go so far as to say, like, anyone can do it. Like, I mean, I'm not, you know, genetically gifted by any means. But yeah. I might be, I might be, might be the shortest person in the world right now over 65. You, you might be correct on that. I'm trying to Reg, think of anyone. Reggie, Reggie would be the closest one. He's taller than I am. Just, I think he's like 6'1". I thought he was taller. Reggie might even really be 6'2". Tall. Reggie might even be 6'2". Hell. Like, I can't, I can't think of anyone below six feet tall. Who's thrown over sixty-five in the last two years? Yeah. Um. So yeah. That that might have yeah. to be my my little gimmick from now on. I'm I'm the shortest. I'm the best short athlete on the planet. I mean, listen. They count the. I think it was the Estonian guy whose name I cannot remember for the life of me. Through I think he threw like not, no javelin through ninety twenty six and like. The whole world blew up. Like, oh my god, it's a new left-handed record. I'm like, I, so I don't see why we couldn't have a, a six-foot, you know, record. 
They did that yeah. with Reggie, though. Reggie threw the world record left-handed, right, when he went 68. Yeah, where did he... Do we, have, do we like, know where he, he's off to? Like, What what Reggie's up to? Yeah, is he, like... Reggie's just doing him, man. He's right. just training, just keeping his head down. Gotcha. I feel like probably off the back end of 2019, he knows... He knows he's good enough. Mm-hmm. He just knows he needs to tap into it. I think that's kind of where the majority of us are. Like, you don't you don't throw 65 and, and say to yourself, like, you know, you don't have it. It's not there. Yeah, like, no. it, it's there. It's just you've got to figure out how to tap into it more consistently and when exactly. it matters. Mm-hmm. And, and, then also, and then also realize where, and, and I say this and it, it could be used against me, but anyone who was there will know otherwise, know when you really had the, the wind in your favor. It's about being real with yourself. Like, if you ask me, I would say my 65 was... I'm not going to say legit as to suggest that a wind-aided throw is illegitimate, but could I have replicated that again? You know, NCAA final, right, effed up, dropped to 64-plus in, in the warm-up. Big 10s, day before, the, the, it, the most torrential, crappiest circle I've ever thrown in in the wet, boss marks. Day before that, dropped 64 50 you know, it's it's like, could could I replicate that kind of performance? Yes. Can Reggie replicate that kind of performance? He's dropped to sixty eight at Champs, good conditions. He dropped to sixty six at Triton, decent conditions. If only only he can really answer that. Yeah. Um. So for him, I think he's just. If I had to guess, I would say Reggie's at a place where he's like, I'm done talking. I just need to. You know, get in the shot, put in some graft, and just come out next year and just drop drop something filthy. Because mm-hmm. I think he knows he wants 70. I mean, you don't throw 68 and not want 70. No, yeah, 100%. So, yeah, I just think he's keeping his head down, man. Mm-hmm. Staying out of trouble, I hope, and yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I agree, I agree. He's definitely... He's He's got the ability to... I mean, he threw... Not that it has any correlation at all, but I mean, he threw weight. 23 mid 23 I mean, mid I mean obviously the weight's not the hammer don't get me wrong but it's still difficult to move like that's a beast to move uh, it speaks volumes though as to like the type of athlete he is I think mm-hmm. when he's like it's not like he's a he's a freaking technician in the weight you know he's, he's no Dempsey McGuigan like let's be real Dempsey not, not that Dempsey being just a He's a Picasso in the circle. Like I Dempsey, can't even deny it. Dem- Dempsey is, is the composer. Like I don't, I don't care how long it takes for him to throw as far as he's capable, but like just watching his his movement is he's a force to be reckoned with in that in that regard. And people should not emulate that. And I kind of feel like I'm trying to do the same with disc. I'm not as pretty, but at the same time, like I'm I'm efficient. Um, but going back, like you know, Reggie's a bit more just bullish. As far as that's concerned, as far as his weight weight was concerned, it just, it just speaks to the amount of power that he has, and then you see the translation because then he, he puts it into his discus throwing. Yeah. So it's like I, you can use those events to your advantage as a you know a foundation of sorts. It just depends on you know what you're trying to derive. Is it you're trying to derive you know a technical proficiency? Are you trying to be fluid? Are you trying to be graceful? Are you trying to be a meathead? Yeah. As long as, long as you know what what your why is. And then you use that into your main event. If it's effective, it's effective. It's going to work regardless. Like there's more than one way to skin the cat, isn't it? So, of course, yeah. Yeah. 
And I feel like what you were saying about how he's bullish and like, you know, if you look at a lot of the Europeans, you know, we as Americans in the throws are obviously it's been just in the shot put and spatterings in the discus. We've always been at the top, but if you look, it's just always just big, huge, like even in discus, like RIP to the great, but Jared Rome was a monster. He was what, like six, seven, six, eight. I heard I heard a few things. I heard he was six eight, I heard he was six four. Either way, he's just he's a he's a beast. I mean, I saw him at Boston my sophomore year. And mind you, you know how I'm six six four and a little bit, you know, six four and a half. Yeah. And he towered and <laughs> just outwithed me. And I've never like I'm a big I'm you know, like I said, six four and a half, two seventy five. Like I'm a big big dude and he just made me look so small i'm like no wonder you threw the discus like yeah, and the interval and still went crazy even i feel like if you look at discus lineage in america like you've got mac you had john powell you got the record holder ben plucknett um, mm-hmm. you had i mean even brian oldfield could sling a disc i feel like yeah and then more recent times around Jared's era, you had Ian Waltz, you had Casey yeah. Malone. Mm-hmm. Um, I think there's one more I'm missing it. Andy Bloom. Andy Bloom. Andy Bloom. Jesus. Just say, yes. just we'll take can we'll take some minutes to talk about Bloom because he's a freak. I, I don't. I don't care. I don't care if his 68 was a 67. Like, if if you want to learn how to throw a disc with 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 just sheer power. It's not to say he wasn't technically proficient, but just sheer power. Watch that 67, 68. I've watched it so many that times. That video gives me chills. Why. And he's not even a discus star, dude. Like, he just, oh, the way he loads the middle, his release, oh, he's incredible. But, like, even then, like, the majority of American discus stars, I feel like, have been more on the athletic side than in comparison to, you know, the shot putters of the day. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah, we don't haven't really had that many big guys. Like Casey's a big dude, but he was just a, like you know, it was like poetry in motion. It was very efficient, very fluid, and uh-huh. dynamic. He wasn't aggressive. Ian, by the same token, like you know, he's aggressive. He's a powerhouse, but like his movement wasn't one of you know. I'm just gonna turn as aggressive as I can and just whack the crap out of it. Um, it's it's actually interesting. I feel like disc. Disc in the States is kind of an event that I, I would have thought you guys would have been better in pound for pound, just on the virtue of like your shot putting. I would um, agree wholeheartedly, honestly. It's just never quite matched. And now, obviously, you've got like, you know, the phenom that is Sam Mattis. <laughs> yes. He's another, he's, he's another person that I, that I need to get on here because he's, Honestly, in my eyes, and this might be an odd comparison, so you're probably not going to take offense, but I think he's the American version of you in the way you, in in thought pattern, almost. Because I've heard and spoken to him, and you're both very, very, I mean, he's got an Ivy League education, but you're just, well, very intelligent, well-spoken, but you both think in a very, like, non-American way, which, to be honest, is, I think, the better way if you're going to be training non-shot put events to throw. Yeah, maybe. I mean, that's kind of just subjective, isn't it? So it's, it would be too braggish of me to just... Put it this, my, it's my hot take. We'll put it that way. It's my hot take on uh, training for yeah. the discus and the hammer and javelin in America. 
I, I would love to talk to Sam on a more, uh, I, I say intimate level, a more engaging level. I feel like we, our conversations have been very superficial. Um, you know, I've, I've competed against him once or twice. Yeah. It's, it's just been that kind of typical camaraderie. And yeah, I've, I've heard good things about him. Um, I've heard he's a good thinker. Uh, yeah, I, I would love to kind of get to know him because I feel like the things I've heard about him as an intellectual and the things I see of him as an athlete, I feel like are, are very different. I would love to see his, you know, his internal philosophy um, and how that manifests itself in, in his art of discus throwing. I think that would be a, a great conversation to have, actually. So, Sam, if, if you ever hear this, give your boy a shout. I'm, I'm down. Look at us, making connections between throwers. <laughs> Fostering the international relations. So, that, yeah. That's what we need. Actually, funny enough, you said that. I think about that a lot more than most people would because I, obviously, you know, when you're an American and you start throwing discus, every coach shows you, you know, Ben, Mac. Those are pretty much it because that's, I mean, Reggie's good, but he's also, he's young still. You know, he hasn't, he's just scratching the surface. But you look at those two, and they were so all over the world. They traveled everywhere. They were, like, it was literally like a traveling show. Like, come see the American Discus Throwers. And if you look, and I know, I think Kibway might have either put it on his podcast or posted about it. The Americas really don't leave America anymore to throw. And, like, if you look, obviously, we still throw bombs. But if you look at what we throw here... Versus what we throw there, especially in like, you know, Krauser, Phenom. He can throw left-handed, probably throw 21. But if you look <laughs> at like Hammer or I don't, like, I don't think we have. The only javelin throw I know we have that's good is Shuey and Del Real. Or Del, Re, Del Real, I think that's what it is, something like that. But they mm -hmm. go over there and they go from like 80, 82 to like 75. And the same thing with the Hammer. I mean, um, I think it's. Might have been oh Rudy, he just threw eighty, like yeah. obviously, and he threw like seventy-seven or seventy-eight the week before, and then went to the thing in Minsk. I think it was like USA versus Europe, yeah. And none of the US competed well because it's like we're not used to traveling, and obviously, I don't know what I have no idea what the USOC does with money or how any of this stuff works with traveling, but like I feel like if they want to see those big numbers, they're going to have to start having people go across. And obviously it's by choice, but they're going to have to be like, mm, see, you know like, what I mean? May, maybe like it's kind of my own naivete. Like I, I haven't yet been to the greatest competitions in the world. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, I missed out on the world championships last year. Obviously the Olympics has been postponed. But like to me, like my... My my philosophy is, is so long as you're not out there just chasing wins, I'm going to talk just as a discus thrower. If, yeah. you're, if you're not going out, if you're not going out of your way to look at the daily forecast in like your neighbouring three or four states, and and making the day trip and being like, you know what, there's supposed to be like a 24 mile an hour wind coming from the northwest quadrant. Like, <laughs> if, if you're not, <laughs> if if you're out there chasing them wins, then you're going to be sorely disappointed when you come to Europe. But then yeah. it's also in, in turn why most people don't get invited to Europe is because one that they know that. Like, America does kind of have a stigma of, like, oh, you know, these people are, like, wind chasers. To what extent that's true, it's not really, like, part of this conversation. I don't really care. Like, whatever. Like, it's mm -hmm. still an art to, to manipulate wind. So, like, fair play to you. Um, but, like, there is a stigma that 
like you know the American disco story is a wind chaser, and also you're so far like it's so cost ineffective when you've yeah. got just enough European talent. I, I'd rather I'd rather pay money to fly someone from the UK to Belarus than all the way from the US. Like mm-hmm. it's just not in my interest as a promoter. Like what's the point? Unless they're dropping bombs consistently, which none of them really are. So yeah, it's it's kind of it's an interesting one. But yeah, like as long as as long as you're not out there like, you know, just chasing wins, then my philosophy is that you just there's there's no difference. You go to each competition, it should be the same thing. As long as you have the, the exact level of or exact or similar level of preparedness, it, it doesn't matter. As long as you've adequately assessed the gradient of the circle, you know what you're working with. And then, you know, if you need to deal with, you know, wind conditions and you deal with them accordingly. But other than that, it, it doesn't matter. Like, I understand that, you know, there's a different level of excitation being at a major. Like, the adrenaline rush I had at Nationals was immense because it was the first time I was going into a comp like, ranked as the number one. And I'd spent however many weeks prior to that in very poor shape for one reason or other. Like, my body wasn't in good nick. I wasn't throwing far. Even, you know, a couple of days before National Champs, I was only dropping 58. Like, I, I wasn't sure if my plan was going to work. And it was just like a fail-safe plan. Like, things weren't where they needed to be. I was problem-solving a lot and just put something in the tank. And, you know, lo and behold, you warm up with a 63 and a 64. And you're like, all right, I'm in, I'm in shape. So I kind of do understand that level of, of arousal. I don't think it's just like, you know, until you go to the Olympics, you don't know what it feels like. No, I, I think arousal is arousal. And, like, once you understand this competition relative to me right now is Greg Thompson, the NCAA number one, this is my Olympic final. You understand through that kind of relative experience what those competitions are like. Like I went to the Diamond League that same year after the collegiate and my first and only Diamond League. And you kind of, you know, I wasn't in great shape. I just come off the flu off of a world, you know, world final. But I was like, you know, I'm, I'm grateful that I get to like kind of hang with them and, and just feed off the environment. Like this is going to be a buzz. And I got there and I was like, is that it? It's just so trivial. Is that it? like? If it doesn't mean anything to you, if you're not yeah. prepared and you're not there relatively, you're not going to feel it. And it's just about learning to normalize those situations. So, again, if you're not an American wind chaser and you throw consistently far over in the States, there's no reason why you shouldn't go to Worlds and emulate. It's, it's more probably about your arousal and if you're overshooting and crapping out. Mm-hmm. Kind of thing. Yeah. And, and that's kind of, sorry to cut you, that's kind of what I see kind of what I see from a lot of the competition like I, I know firsthand what it's like to to overshoot and have complete catastrophe like fortunately in my situation given a good level of preparedness I know that to not be the case so now it's for me to not just talk it but then also prove it in a season where I'm uninterrupted and I don't have external factors ruining my season for one of a better term I'm able to just put my plan into action control my controllables have fail safes but then not be like directly affected. Whereas like I, I see other people and I've, I've spoken to them going to majors and they're like, yeah, you know, trainers go, well, I'm phenomenal. I'm dropping this, I'm dropping that. And all these performance indicators, blah, blah, blah. And then you get there and you just look like a mediocre athlete. And it's like, why? You, you don't have an excuse at that point. You know, you're prepared. Or, or are you prepared? You know, if, if the mental game is nine tenths of the law, then you're not, you're not prepared. Because certain people have certain techniques that just, you can already see a certain athlete and say, like, 
you know, if I had to put money on them choking, that would be them, just because their technique just allows it to be that way. You know, just a little bit too much arousal and that whole thing just goes to complete shambles. And other people just, they'll just have like a worse day. Like, Stahl had a, for me, had a crap day at Worlds last year. But he's good enough that he's had a string of number ones, a string of wins, and his bad day is better than most people's good day. Mm-hmm. So it's like, he can, he can have a high level of arousal, overshoot crap out a little, but his technique, his rhythm and everything like that, so well ingrained and engineered that it still carries him through. And then there's obviously the question that, you know, other people also had high level of arousal and they crapped out equally. But again, if, if you're all underprepared on the day, then what do you expect? Like, people look at it like, oh, you know, someone said to me, like, Greg, oh, you know, if you did go to our champs and, like, you know, you'd thrown 67 or whatever and won, or say, say, like, it took 66 to win, like, would you have been happy with it? And I've been like, eh, I mean, there was, there was a time where I would have been like, you know, if I felt like I could have thrown 68 and I only threw 66, I'd be cheesed off. But, like, it's only when you're in it you really start to appreciate how important the mental training aspect is. And you're like, you know what? Mm-hmm. I, I've prepared mentally to throw a certain distance. If you do that, you deserve to win. And if, if you haven't trained that element, I don't care if you've thrown 70 all season. If, if you put such a level of prevalence on the world final that you then go with a season average of 70, say, and you throw 67, then you, you deserve to risk getting your ass whooped. Fortunately for Daniel, obviously, it just wasn't the case. Okay. So, you know, it's just there's, there's an element of luck and also a level of preparedness. Um, and I, I just think you have to have a, a technique that allows that kind of margin for error to be a little bit wider than normal if, if mm-hmm. you're that kind of athlete. Because, again, the, the mental side is so overlooked. And I feel like even the greatest psychologists and, and athletes that I know firsthand who are, you know, some of the best in the world that have brilliant psychology behind them still tighten up, still choke. So, you know, what, is it, what does it really take to, to optimise your potential when it matters most? It's, it's something that, you know, is part of my, my journey, my philosophy, and I'm trying to figure out just that. I'm not interested in, oh, like, you know, he threw 65 and, like, hopefully he's consistent at that. Like, nah, the day I threw 65, I knew I had 67, 67 and a half in the tank. And I fouled a 66 and a half in the last round. So it's like, I'd rather put in the work to realise a 67 once than realise two 65s. I'd rather throw a 65 once and a 67 once than two and three 65s. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, having my cake and eating it, I want that to be when it matters most at a world final. You know? So no, I got you, yeah. 100%. There's a, that's that's Sorry, one of the friend. big things. No, you're good. Dude, that's what that's what this is here for. We have no time limit until you're ready to, like, pass out. I'm, I'm, I'm good. But cool. that's the one thing I do see a lot of. Obviously, I'm not at that top level yet, but I'm very, very, very observant of the people around me and the people I compete with. And I can usually, with a look, be like, you're going to do good. You're not going to do good. I know what you've been throwing, but you don't look like you're on it. Like, I can always tell. And the mental game is so much of what we do that sometimes it's almost like, okay, like, although I've, I've gone into meets, like, obviously, you know, the weight, I'm just trying to throw it far. Like, I don't really care. It's just I'm, I'm doing it for fun. You know, it's NCAA points. I'll go into meets and be like, look, 
I threw maybe 1750, 18, 1850 in practice. I know my body has the reps. I just got to like keep the mindset. I'm good. Let's go. Like just it's another meet. Just treat it like it is. Like even if I'm at, even if I was at the top, like I'm going to be hyped before and after, but the Doring, it's just another meet. Like obviously com- the MAC conference, you know, the greatest conference, the NCAA total gym, but <laughs> You know, I'm at conferences and I'm like 400 milligrams of caffeine because my my nervous system was shot from squatting that week. Got the buzz, got in the circle, was totally silent. I was good. I got there. I'm like, just another meet. I go out first throw. I was like, boom, done. That's it. Execute. And everything after that, they I was I don't think I had a throw under. 1858 and I threw 1881. Like, it was there. It was there. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was a different level of excitation from you. I was like, oh, until it's popped in the fuck off. What's going on? Yeah, right? You never, you never, you should not see that from me. But I was like, you know what?
I couldn't sleep. I like <laughs> everyone crazy. crashed out on the bus, and I'm just like raring to get back out and throw. I get home some three hours later. I try and sleep. I had to call my friend in the UK. Shout out time change. Um, I had to call my friend in the UK. I damn near was having a panic attack. And I was like, I cannot sleep. My heart rate was at like 140. And I just couldn't settle. And I called her and I'm like, I'm worried. <laughs> I don't know what's going to happen to me. <laughs> oh, my God. Oh, dude. It was crazy. But, yeah. I, I was just it was just something I wanted to share. It was just funny. It was a great experience. It was something I'm never gonna do again. Oh, like no. I clearly just not built to metabolize caffeine in the in the appropriate channels. Um but yeah, no, it was just funny you mentioned it in the caffeine thing. It just reminded me of it. Yeah, it was that, good times. That's so odd because they're if you actually look, they have like stupid high levels of B twelve. They're not even like Dickity. They're not even. It, it's not even the caffeine. The caffeine gets the the B twelve going, but then once the B twelve hits your system and starts converting, that's what gets you. So and that's what it is. Yeah. Yeah, because it B. I took the nutrition last year and I can't remember, but B twelve converts something and energy anaerobic, whatever. But it makes it, it it has the same effect as caffeine, but you don't get the crash, and that's really weird that you took your body like hours to. I think I off. think I'd I'd spent some good time like on vitamin water, vitamin water. Um and obviously like I think it was like the the, the blueberry and pomegranate flavour was rich in B twelve, B six, niacin. Um and I had a lot of issues with my nervous system that year. That so yeah. where I could I was just drinking vitamin water. It was, like, it was tasty for me, it was at like Bobby's Burger Palace. It was like the drink go-to. Yeah. So, so I was drinking that a lot. And I think my body had just learned to handle the initial dosage. Just some kind of adaptation. Maybe, maybe I'm talking complete smack. Uh, but that's what I felt like that happened. And then obviously, like, you read the canister and you're like, this is like 12,000% of your recommended daily dose of B12. Yeah. So obviously, like, that initial feeding window was just like, all right, this is normal. And then once I got that massive influx, was just like, oh, this is a completely different, different level altogether. But like for me, I, I somewhere I think I read it somewhere. Like the, the thing about like metabolizing B twelve and B six and all that, like the way the liver has to process it, like it, it doesn't always do the best job of doing it. Yeah. So like it can leave you feeling really sick, and that's typically what happens to me. So like I had to stop drinking the vitamin water because that flavor alone, like one or two sips of it, I'd immediately start getting like reflux. My really? body would just my body just rejects it. It just doesn't like it anymore. Um and that was the, the exact same sensation. So not only was like my heart racing, but I just felt that nausea. Mm -hmm. So I'm calling my friend and I just slowly start sipping cold water. And within half an hour it completely dissipated and I that was it. I was out like a babe. Um Yeah. So if anyone's hearing that and they needed some advice on B twelve consumption, they, there you there go. You go. <laughs> There is. So we were just talking a little bit about you were saying, you know, how you were at um at nationals and pen relays. So, and we obviously talked about the greatest meat in the East. I think honestly, outdoors UVA. What is your favorite meat you have competed in in your entire pen. track and field career? Pen. Pen. Okay. I, I don't. I don't even give a shit that it's not in the stadium. I don't care. 
pen. So I'd gone to, obviously I didn't compete my freshman year. I had to sit out. I'd lost the year. So sophomore year was my first year at Penn, and I threw a PR. I threw 194.3, like 59.33, marginal PR. And I fouled a 60 in the last round. And just the buzz. I'd, I'd never, ever on the European and British circuit experienced that kind of atmosphere. People, people had gone out of their way to pass the stadium, cross the bridge, walk down the stairwell, cross all the way over some random turf pitches and knock on the door and say, hey, we want a seat at the table. And they were in the masses. And this wasn't just parents. These were just athletics fans coming to watch us pop off. Mm-hmm. The top six in the, in the nation. Like At the time, it was me. It was like uh, Macklin Tudor. It was David Lucas. I forgot uh, Tudor was there that year. I was going to say. Tudor won. He dropped 63. Yeah. Um, I think David had thrown a... 61 that year. Yeah, it was 61. Anya from FSU had dropped a 60. Uh, anyone else who I've missed out, apologies, but like the comp was just on one. We had a kid from Oregon as well. And I just knew, I was like, this this competition is going to be the flex for me. This this was it. And then the second year, my junior year, I PR'd again. I threw 61 and some change. 61.29, I believe. Um... And it was just the exact same buzz. And I remember going into the third year, so it was me and um, Stoner from Clemson. And I'd beaten him at the... uh, We went to spring break in Jacksonville and I pinched him there. And then we went to Florida Relays and he beat me in the last round by some nine centimetres. And there was a good little healthy rivalry going on between him and I. And it was like, oh, you know, Penn will be the decider before Nationals, blah, blah, blah. Mm Mm-hmm. And I'm I'm not really like that kind of confident person, but I literally just looked at him and coach, and I was like, if if you're not if you're not ready at Penn to drop anything past sixty three, there's no point. And they kind of just looked at me puzzled, and I was like, Penn is my home. It's not just some okey doke me. I'm I'm two and two. I'm you know returning champion of sorts. It's the hundred twenty fifth anniversary. Like I'm looking to ball out. This ain't yeah. This ain't just some joke. If if you're if you're gonna come 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 equipped, so much so, <laughs> it's the most gassed I've ever been. But it it worked. Like I remember, me and Stoner were one, and well, he was first in the throwing list. I was second, and our round ones were conservative. I took the lead with a fifty-eight. His round two, he opened up with a sixty, and the crowd had just popped off, and. It was the first time in my head where I heard a 60 and I was like, is this what we're getting excited about? I was like, I'm, I'm here. I'm here. So, because for me, Penn's that place where, and you know what it's like, especially like the discus and the hammer circle. You're, yeah. It, it's, you're just in a coliseum. You feel like a gladiator. You, I, Dude, I feel like Russell Crowe every time I'm there. Now. Right. So, this, this, this works in the story beautifully. So, you're, you're performing for hundreds of fans, all in the banks, all in the stairwells, standing, hovering above you in this amphitheater-like environment. And you are the actor center stage, giving them something to remember you by. Like, I every single year when I've gone to Penn, 
before anyone shows up, we get there, we check our discs in. I walk in the circle, I stand there and I just do a 360 and I just survey the entire seating arrangement. And I just imagine what it's like when everyone watches that disc just fly off. And it gives me that like, are you not entertained kind of vibe. It literally, mm-hmm. I, I, I've always said So going back to the competition then last year, Stoner drops a 60, the crowd's going nuts. And I'm just like, mm, mm, all right, cool. I'm walking in the circle, Stoner's coming out. I said, good throw, G, he said, bless. I gave him a pound. As soon as like, we connected, I literally said, all right, watch this. I said that like, point blank in his face. I said, watch this. I walk in, let go. As soon as I hit it, I was like, that's it, game done. Comp is over. Do what you want. Throw to your best. I it's, felt that. It's, it's over. And I, I remember like walking back, watching the disc land, and I turned around, and hands down, the cockiest freaking thing I've ever done. I turned around, and I put my arms up in the air like, are you not fucking entertained? And in my head, I'm thinking, God, I hope one of the photographers catches that moment. I walk out, they drop the 65, the crowd goes nuts. I'm like, there you bloody go. And then it turns out that someone had taken a photo of me in that exact pose. That's awesome. That's awesome. But, like, that for me is it's just like, we all kind of live in track and field to have those kind of defining moments. Mm-hmm. That, that thing that's like hyper real. That for me was hopefully the first of a few, but that was the that hyper real moment. That was the the defining moment. And it's something I'm I'm never ever gonna forget. And yeah, I I freaking love Penn. I don't think there is a better competition on the arguably on the planet, bar maybe one. And I'll let you know when I get there in the next year or two. Um, it's in Germany. They're supposed to be like the you know the throws mecca, but. I Where? Would love to, uh, Halle in Germany. Oh, okay. Yes. I, I, feel, I feel like they're, they're the two that are closely rivaled. Mm-hmm. Um, but the only, the only problem is Penn doesn't have a pro contingent. So I pitched, I pitched to the organizers that we do a pro meet. And I got the green light for it. And I had to organize it. And it would have been like on a Wednesday, which wasn't ideal. But it yeah. would have been something. And, but then obviously COVID happened and it all just kind of went to the wayside. So hopefully I can kind of touch base with them and rekindle as of next year. No, that would be awesome to see. Goes ahead and, dude, I'll fly back in a heartbeat to go pen. It's just, it's just, I'm not doing it because I'm there to chase distance. I'm doing it because I'm I'm there to be around like-minded individuals who just appreciate what I'm there to, to do. I'm there to perform for you lot. And it's like, if, if you're truly about it and you've like, oh, you know, Greg's here, like, Oh, I can't wait to see this and no 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 like I was there when he threw the 65 like it's the first time in my life where someone asked me what PR is and I don't say like only such and such I'm like yeah 65 yeah like, oh, that's one of four. I'm like yeah it's, it's pretty it's yeah. pretty good like uh, it's at that point now and it's there are there are some people that were sat there in attendance that's the furthest throw they had ever and probably will ever see mm-hmm I can say that is the farthest thing I've ever seen. That's the farthest I've ever seen a discus throw. I remember, I can fondly remember watching it come out of your hand. And I've seen a lot of crazy stuff there. I watched Chai Chang in 2015 throw like 64, almost 64, 65 meters. It was a foul, but with a, uh, with a, what's the high school? One six, with a 1.6K discus just floated. And when I saw that thing come out of your hand, it just, and it kept going 
<laughs> and it did when I, I talk about this all the time, it didn't look like it was coming down. Dude. It, it, it's freaky because I have I have kind of two defining throws in my repertoire where I know that like I'm I'm either at my potential or I'm, I'm very close. And I kind of call them the great throw and the perfect throw. The great throw was the 65. It was great forceful delivery, really got a nice orbit. My, you know, my, my length, my tension was on and the flick I got was enormous. So as soon as I, as soon as I'd let go, I was like, this is the throw you've been looking for your entire collegiate experience. About damn time. Cool. And then obviously I'd walked out and when they said 65, I was like, oh, I thought it was like 63, maybe 64. When they said 65, I just kind of, sh- I remember I just scratched my head and looked at the audience. I was like, oh, oh, okay. And everyone was screaming and I was like, oh, all right. And because I, I didn't know what to do with myself because it was just like, I'm in thought at this point, but I feel like, oh, you owe it to the, the fans and the crowd to, to engage in some level of excitement. So I kind of let out like <laughs> the bougiest little like woohoo <laughs> walked into the dugout and I, I just sat there for a bit and I was like all right you're world class now cool whatever what's next and I'm like you know what like my perfect throw relative to my great throw there's always like a one and a half two meter drop off mm-hmm. and and Coleman my my coach at Maryland had seen that so I, I took a minute or two I reflect and I went to go walk over to tell him what I thought and I just remember him looking very pensive. And I was like, you, you good? And he was like, dude, you know what the scary part is? I, I, I've learned how you train, how you operate. Great, great throw. You've got, if you get it right, you've probably got another two meters in a tank. And it was that kind of like fusion. <laughs> yes. It's like me and him and I were just, we were, we were locked in. We knew that was the potential. And I just looked at him and said, dude, I literally was coming over to tell you the exact same thing. All right, you got four more, go do it. And obviously it didn't, <laughs> but it was, it was like, that, that used to be a very regular thing for me, that kind of delivery. And it was something through my experiences, I've changed, I've modified, and I've evolved, and I tried to add things that were very unnatural for me. And the more I kind of regress and go back to the things that worked when I was a little in, with my dad and everything like that is is the better I become. So mm-hmm. I'm trying to forever touch base with that kind of like inner child. I'm always trying to go back to the fun of it. And the fun is where the fundamentals are for me. Exactly. And I'm trying to make that now the consistent kind of set. Because even then, like my series at Penn went what 58, 65, the biggest foul I've ever hit in a cage. Um 60 64-55 and a 66 and a half foul. You can kind of look at it as like, oh, that's a bloody good series. And at the same time, you can look at it and be like, eh, mm, hit or miss. I, I want it to get to that point now. It's like when I'm locked in, like I already know my groove and I want it to be a string of four, maybe five great throws. Mm-hmm. And then that one autonomous, just that autopilot. And and it's funny because like to the untrained eye, like that 65 and then, you know, the 67 potential would have looked like the exact same throw. But yeah, to someone like me, like I would have known exactly what there's a different kind of level of elevation and just the way in which it, it looks like it's never going to come down that I, it didn't, that 65 didn't quite have. 
Um, so I'm still kind of chasing that perfection of sorts. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, that, I just remember hitting it. Because obviously, like, I throw with the, the prettiest discs on the planet, in, in my opinion. I just, the, the Noco Gold, the Noco Odysseys, they're, they're just like the best looking discs for me. You, you hit them and just watching the sun beam off of that rim, it's just, mm-hmm. it's different. And I remember just hitting it and being like, yep, this is, this is just poetry in motion. And it, it took, you know, it typically takes like, what, three, four seconds for a disc to land? And I felt like I was there for like eight, eight ten seconds. Mm-hmm. Just watching it like, oh, this is nice. Cool. Okay, do it again. Are you not entertained? Like, that kind of. <laughs> no, but, yeah. I feel you, I feel you. No, it's, it's, it's awesome. Like, I feel like, because the only recordings I've ever seen is obviously, shout out Throws University, good old Dane. Dane obviously got his buddy to take a side side angle and only saw the technique, didn't see the disc. And then one of my teammates recorded one from like a cage angle. But like, I would have loved, my only regret about being the actor is I don't get to be the spectator. Yeah, I feel that. So I, would love, I would love to have been in your shoes to kind of watch myself in the third person and just watch it fly and be like, you know what? Yeah, you did that. That cool. was... That was a performance. I that listen. I've been do a lot. I've been watching and competing in track since I was. I, think I went to the Penn Relays for the first time to watch in like third grade, so like eight years old. No I've seen a lo- I've seen a lot of crazy stuff. I've yeah. seen almost every Jamaican thrower. <laughs> that's been good. I'm. I'm. I've seen Chang. I saw Dakers when he was there. Yep. Um Travis Michael. Mm-hmm. When he was there, I'm. Who was the shot putter? They had a shot putter. Oh, it might have been Asafa. Um, Oh yeah, no, there you go. He was like, I've seen all of them, and that was the pinnacle. That just technique. That's another thing we're going to talk about is your technique because you have your left foot dominant, but your no, your left hand, but your right foot dominant, or some combination of the two. I'm I'm left, left. Yeah, I'm left, left. Yeah. But you yeah. throw right-handed, which is everyone's like, "Why does he?" I'm like, "You'll just ask him; he'll tell you." Yeah. But just you floated, you hit it, it you reverse, and it just carried. I appreciate that, man. No, it's good. I, I'm starting to realize like I can have that kind of effect, and I, it's something I I yearn for now. It's kind of I've got that that taste for it and that hunger. It's like I want to be the person who, you know, that aspiring athlete or that contemporary looks at and is like that was the greatest moment I've seen you were the first person to tell me that I could throw easily throw 60 meters in a hammer easily you're like give it a year you'll do it I was like listen this guy throws far as shit if he thinks I can do it then I can do it and I'm like you were like yeah you're like dude you're like tall you'll be fine your your arms are long just do it I'm (laughs) like he said I could do it so just do it and then like like, relax (laughs) yeah literally I went I went 58 early in the season, yeah. and then uh, didn't. I was like, I got to national or uh, regionals. I'm like, listen, I'm not gonna throw 66. I'm just gonna have fun. Went out. I think I threw like 56 or 57. Had a warm up that was like 61, and I was like, okay, see, like things happen. I just gotta figure it out, and it'll happen. Like it'll work. Like you know, Greg said it'll happen. It happens. Gotta listen to grits, you know. Uh, Confucius say, yeah. Yes, literally. Yeah. So you talk a lot about how you train both in physical and mental aspects. What does a regular day and a regular week look like for you in training? 
Shit, good question. <laughs> I don't even know anymore. Um, we'll say pre-COVID since all this stuff is crazy. So what would your ideal currently, ideal setup be? And then what are you actually doing? My, my ideal would back then would have been three sessions a week, three, three throwing uh, and three in the gym. Obviously, it depends between winter and in-season. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's obviously a lot more conditioning and a bit more plyometrics and more athletic-based training. Because, um, again, the, the, the founding philosophy was, you know, you're an athlete first grade, you're a discus thrower second. Um, learn to run, learn to jump, learn to crawl, learn to move, learn to emulate movement, and then apply these technical principles. And, you know, there you go you're a discus thrower um so kind of if it was more like i'm close to season in season again it would kind of be that three to three regime um mental training is something that like i it's something that i'm now starting to kind of block but it'd been something that i'd just innately done uh or sorry not even intuitively done um you kind of go to sessions and you set yourself a target. I think that's the, the first step of, of the mental training. Is you you set yourself that physical target, that tangible target, and then you set yourself the mental target. It's like, how am I going to achieve the physical by completing the mental? Um, so it's some days it's like you know you're in great shape to throw far, drop a bomb, but you said to yourself you're gonna just drop you know a percentage of your best and do it as efficiently and as effortlessly as possible. And you're going to take 40, 50, 60 throws and just keep dropping them. I had a session where I was dropping anywhere from 58, 50 to 60 meters. And I had 60 throws and every single one of them went between the two cones. And we were getting ready to throw 63 at the time. Uh-huh. And it was like, I knew all I had to do was just up the ante in the mid phase. And I would whip the absolute crap out of it. And as tempting as it was, I literally was like, can you refrain from doing what you want to do for what is necessary? And and that would, if, if I could achieve that, I knew I could compete well. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, that's why junior, junior year nationals was, for me, my best collegiate exp- like competition. Okay, yeah, you know, Greg, you threw 59, what, eight at, at nationals? You fouled a 60? But then when you look at the conditions, it was a six-meter PR in the rain. Yeah. That, that circle was slick. That Oregon circle was fast. Um, and, like, yeah, you've thrown 65 in your collegiate experience. So why was that, the, you know, the best moment? It was, it was the most uninterrupted I'd been in my training. I didn't have, you know, external forces kind of messing up my training and my ability to train. Um, the program wasn't perfect. But it was it was what it was, and and you know Coleman and I manipulated it accordingly to to make it count. And I remember that session saying, you know what, it will be okay because the next session you're going to catch the perfect throw for relative to where you are right now with the training you've done, and you'll see where you are. And it was the week, the Monday when we flew out and we had a session in the morning by nine a.m. And the furthest I'd ever see myself throw was like a sixty-one. And I hit this perfect throw and literally just watched it sail out and drop to 63. And I was like, all right. Okay. Brian Williams obviously dropped to 65 at that point. But I'm looking at it like, if I get my shit right, I could, I could win this thing. 
And I remember we went to training at Oregon. It was a session before the championship. Uh, I think I had 16 throws. And I said, right, now's your time to, to pop off. And we must have had, I think, 10 throws over 62. And none of them connected. And none of that's my favorite lesson. You got to think I'm a crackhead, not to cut you off. That's my favorite feeling. I, and that's been happening to me a lot recently. Like, mm-hmm. everything I'm posting is like, I, I look so unathletic. I just, my body, I, I literally, I felt like I've had the kinesthetic awareness of a three-year-old. But they're going like 62, 63. I'm like, these things are getting pulled and shifted and I'm not, the hips aren't moving and I'm, Still, you know, learning the technique, but obviously it's it's a process because I'm new with this the, this event. But I'm throwing 63, and they're like understepped. My hips aren't moving the right way. My shoulders are too high. My left arm's out way out of whack. And it's like, you know, take your time and proper training. And I could do you know 66, 67 with this God knows where else. But like in short term, that's what I can see. Just these big, huge things I'm doing wrong. If I fix, it's going to be big changes. Like. But I love that feeling. It's fascinating. It's, it, it proves why the mental aspect is more important than anything else. You have a low training age, relatively. Yeah, it's very low training age. But you're of age. Mm-hmm. So what you have that gets in the way is, is your mental. The best, the best time to exploit that it was average thing but still goes far is when you're a kid. And it's why I'm fortunate that I threw so early. I had competitions and seasons where my technique was still in its evolving phases and everything like that. And we would go to one competition and, you know, I remember my PR at the time was like 30 years. And my dad said, all right, I'm going to teach you one technical cue today. We're going to have a two hour session before the comp. I said, before? He's like, yeah. I was like, okay. You're going to learn how to you know, your left footed, we're going to teach you how to manipulate your right a little bit and make it work. And I threw for two hours, didn't know the distance. And I was like, oh, this feels half-baked. I'm missing positions, but I get what you're saying. But, you know, you're a sponge at that point. I went to the competition and had four throws over 35. And, and I, I don't have that kind of, I know so much, but I know little mentality where, like, I, I'm my own worst enemy and I'm getting in my head. And that's kind of what I'm talking about, about that, like that regress, that regression back to being a child. It's, yeah. I'm trying to convince myself that I've spent enough time teaching the body to become a machine of autonomous action. that I should just allow it to be, be just that. Um, it, it comes down to the mental, the mental component. So I remember when I went to nationals that year, I knew my typical precursor was I could throw far distance-wise, but I would feel crap. And if that was my last session, it would all, it would all come together in, in the competition. I would rather have a shit session as my last session than a good one. But, but is that because maybe mentally I'm not astute enough to be able to handle the arousal that comes with expectation? And, and you know, I'm good enough to be humbled by not feeling great, that I just settle down and find the rhythm? Is it possible that I could learn how to have great sessions before the big one and then still go above and beyond expectation? There are so many, so many kind of locks and I'm just trying to find that whole master key type, mm-hmm. type thing with it. Um, 
but it, it's just easier definitely at its base to be naive and to just agree, just let it be mm -hmm. I agree. yeah 100%. yeah a lot of people and anybody who knows me i overthink everything every single thing like i overthink walking but when it comes to track is the only place where i can control that it's there i see a circle i get in i'll do some like super cheap turns like not even move the body at all but i just can feel the, the ground and i can contact and feel the atmosphere and like everything closes in i'm like okay inner peace just shut down and my body's like okay it's time to work like yep every single but i'll be in practice like i don't like this i don't like that that was too much. I didn't turn the left enough. The right wasn't the right way. I hooked it. I shanked it. I did, and like, I feel like that's almost like the dichotomy. The, the the dichotomy of my brain is like, when working, it's all over the place. But when it's time to use the work I've done, it it takes the the mass of it and just refines it. And it's like, here's your here's here. Go ahead, compete. Like we have what we need. We're gonna let you do your thing, but here's here's everything you need, and that's just that's how I perform. That's how I performed for the last two years at least. But yeah, it's 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 good though. It's not something I would want to change. I think, uh, you know, I could call upon you to maybe exercise a bit more of that token into your training paradigm. Mm -hmm. Just just implement it. See where it takes you. Learn. You know build that portfolio, figure out what works for I, Montel, like, you know, that's, mm -hmm. that's where you want to get to. Um, but no, like you, the whole point is if, if, if 10,000 hours of practice to put the corny, you know, term into practice, if 10,000 hours is going to be defined in all but four seconds, because it's, it's not, you know, you get to an Olympic final, it's not six throws. One of those throws is like your destiny. Yes. If, if you're going to be defined four years of work or one year of work, depending on how you program, in four seconds, why would you want to do any more to control that other than the four years worth of work? Yeah. The 10,000 hours of work. The whole purpose is I'm programming you meticulously to just operate you you don't set up dominoes and then midway through to, oh no, i want to quickly change this like you set it up you've assessed it i hope you have your shit together flick the first and then just watch it unfold mm -hmm. exactly. but, then, but then the argument is why not do that with everything yeah why not learn to set the schematic every training session is its own set of dominoes rather than a session is one domino. Yeah. Session is a second domino. I I would rather have sessions of sets of dominoes, and just be able to set one thing up, and just just do that, just flick, and just let the session evolve, and take its course. That way, it's even more familiar, because when you have your defining moment, your defining competition, which I might argue you haven't had yet, and because of expectation of your low low training age. When you have that defining moment, will the arousal be something that you're incapable of controlling? So much so that your natural filter now just becomes, you know, a complete coffee spill on, the, on mm -hmm. a white table. 
I hope it doesn't come to that, and I hope that you are well engineered. Hopefully. But if you're if you're committed to doing everything in your power, then it might be worth investigating some of some of those what ifs, especially mm-hmm. now that you have the opportunity to experiment. You're not going to lose anything by it. You're not taking great risk. You're you're learning. You're putting something in your back pocket. Should in case you ever come to that moment and it does hit you like a ton of bricks. Yeah. And it's like, well, I wasn't prepared for this. Oh, well, yeah, wait, actually, I am. <laughs> it's like, you know. <laughs> Mm-hmm. And and then and then you own it and you boss it. I think that's how champions are made. And that's kind of there were a lot of lessons that I didn't learn growing up. Like I had a my father was a fantastic coach. Take nothing away from him. There's certain lessons I didn't learn. And I, I can't look to him to be perfect. Mm-hmm. Is it that he didn't know them? Is it that it was always in his plan for me to figure them out by myself? Who knows? But either way, like I'm in this position of awareness where I know that I don't know enough. So I'm committed to figuring it all out. And, you know, my journey might be rough, rugged and raw as a result, but hopefully the, the top end of it will be somewhat worth the reward, like worth the, worth the wait, rather. But, you know, it's to be seen. The journey's still yeah. unfolding, so. No, but I, I, that was a lot of very deep philosophical <laughs> thought, but I understand everything that you said, oddly enough. I know exactly what you mean. And no, it's like, you only get what you put, you only get out what you put in. Like, if you don't work, then, you know, you're not going to get much. But when you put in everything, blood, sweat, and tears, and you're, like, ups and downs and sideways, obviously, there's, like, the 1% of the 1% of the 1% is going to have perfect linear, like, go back to the, you know, the, the Northwestern giant, Krauser just linear it's always been like set you know through had the best double of ever ever time for high school and then just kept going up and then went great in college and then you know he just keeps accelerating not he's a third or fourth generation shot put thrower his family is throwing like not everyone's like that but for the p the regular people who grind everything's ugly and dirty and disgusting and you work and polish it and mold it those are the people who, in the end, if the mentality is right, are going to succeed. It's the people who don't want to put the work in or like, eh, I'll do it later. Those are the ones that aren't going to see the results they want. Because you have to, if you want it more than you want to breathe or, you know, not to be cliche, but like if you really, really want it and it's on your mind all the time, then you're going to do everything in your power to do it and do it correctly and learn as much as you can. And obviously you can't learn everything and you do have to go everything into everything with an air of, you know, humility and openness to learn. But there's always something new that can be learned. And I found that out in the last four years, three years of throwing. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> it's like, what, what more do I need to say to add on to that, to be honest? Like, yeah, it's, that's basically it. I think mm-hmm. ev- everyone has a recipe that works for them. Some people are fortunate enough to to find it yeah some are fortunate to have it bestowed upon them and some are just unfortunate some may never have it mm-hmm. some may have some may have the opportunity glaring them in the face and they never realize it to capitalize on it and some of them are just in the wrong place at the wrong time and that's kind of just the, the luck of the draw and that's kind of nature doing what she does best yeah. Um, mm-hmm. yeah it's you know if you're in the presence of the right factors and the right circumstances it's on you to to make right with them so, yeah, no, I mean, I agree with, with everything you just said. 
Definitely, definitely. All right, let's get into some meathead shit here. What is... I'm going to do... Obviously, we don't deadlift it a lot as throwers, but I'm going to do big three as bench, squat, clean. What is what are your what are your maxes, even if it's like a three or a four like rep? Uh, I don't clean. Oh, we've had this conversation before. Yeah. Why, so I want to know why don't you clean? Because I have yeah. heard different things. Why Why does Greg not Olympic lift? It's like the question on everyone's mind. Um. Uh, so, like, I spent, like, a year and a half doing Olympic lifts, and it just just didn't transfer. Now, admittedly, like, I might not have had the greatest coach at Olympic lifting. Not a terrible coach, but just not, you know, one that was conducive for me. And I didn't really make that much improvement. Um, there were just certain things that we never did. Like, in, in hindsight, I... I feel like I know what we could have and should have done better to maybe elicit a better result. And yes, you know, it might be worth experimenting to see if the output is there. But it's just a thing where, like, just regular powerlifting has just worked for me. It's, it's all I've known. Um, and and the, I, haven't, I haven't seen enough, really, in the literature to suggest that, like, there's that much more benefit to be had from it. Like, I don't, I don't consider, like I said before, I don't consider myself, you know, some kind of genetic specimen. Like, I'm not a freak. And yet I've been able to throw 65 and show the potential for much more off of nothing more than a bench, a squat. When, when I hit my 65, funny enough, my whole junior and senior year, I benched, I squatted, I bicep curled. And if you were lucky, yeah, come on, it's, it's just, you know, one-on-one makes two, dude. Um... And and if you were, if you were lucky, you would see me do some other kind of auxiliary. Every now and then, a little bit of incline bench, occasional hammer curl, maybe a you know dumbbell military press. But like that, that pretty much was it. And you know that carried me from the age of I started lifting at eighteen, very late, very late in the game. Wow. What would Neville do? It was one of those like you know, old-fashioned like lifting is going to stunt your bone growth and your development and blah, blah, blah. And I'm only six foot, so there's not much hope. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, yeah, we, I didn't start lifting until well into my 18th, 18th year. Um, so this is all I've known. And I, I learned a myriad of different programs and seen the effects. And some of them I learned how to peak with effectively. Some of them I got lucky with and, you know, did it again to see if it was a fluke and it turned out to actually work. And, just jotted it down. And Olympic lifting was just something that never really worked. I've, I've learned how I can manipulate Olympic lifts to to spike a performance, but there isn't enough knowledge for me. And again, I have a very small, practically don't even have a team really um, of people around me to have been able to impart such wisdom that would have shown me what to do with it to maintain it, to exploit it, to flourish and nourish it. Um, yeah, it's just one of those things. It's just like, kind of, if it ain't broken, don't fix it. But I'm not stubborn. Mm-hmm. I think I, I know where to draw the line. Um, I'm open to the ideas. It's just thus far, no one's really come with like a real compelling argument in favor of. They're just like, oh, you know, improve your ability to do this and do that. And I've seen due to a freak side of it, cannot throw for shit. Mm-hmm. And and conversely, I I know dudes like look, Sam Mattis cleans 200 kilos. 
the most I've ever cleaned was 140. But I'm like, I can do that. <laughs> I power I power clean 130. I I full clean 140 for a double. But I just didn't have the grip strength to be able to handle the bar. But then if you put you know wraps on a bar, I could do clean pulls in excess of 170, 180 kilos. Yeah. So it's like I didn't do any specific lifting training, Olympic lifting training to get me to that point. Everything else I've done is just improved my ability to deadlift the bar and then just smack the crap out of it and hoist it up. Got but it. it's like, you know, Sam, Sam can clean 200k amazingly, but we're only so far apart. Is it really that important? Is it just one of those? It's another way to skin the cat. And for me, it's just like, it's another way to skin the cat. I know that I don't know enough about it and I don't also have the patience to want to experiment with that because I feel like it's much more of a venture and mm-hmm. that's time that could be spent developing. Right now I'm in that kind of critical period, you know, I'm, I've reached full physical maturation. I'm, I'm, you know, entering that peak phase of, of elite performance. Why would I spend X amount of months of a year learning what Olympic lifts can do for me and f- come to find that it doesn't work when I can just manipulate what I already know and use it to get fucking strong and transfer it adequately and, and effectively. Uh, that's just kind of been the big the big reason for me. And again, like I said, I just haven't really had the right people behind me promoting the usage of it. Like the thing is, what I need right now is someone who's done it, who knows it, it's just been like A, B, and C, and I could be like, oh, three bags full. I haven't yet had that. I've, I've there are some people around me now, I'm fortunate to some degree, who I'm listening to and, you know, engaging with and they're making some compelling arguments. So who knows? I might kind of give it a whack at some point, but for the most part, I want to stick to what I know. So bench, it's kind of weird. I've never spent any time in a peak phase, really. Okay. I've never done like heavy ass triples, a single. So I've only ever benched 180 kilos or four or five for a single okay but then a few weeks later as i think you've obviously seen on instagram i then benched 177 and a half kilos 390 pounds 395 pounds for five yeah um squat wise i i recently squatted 475 for 12. that's not even a surprise you're what how you probably have no idea but you have to have like 50 inch thighs like your legs are like gigantic <laughs> Nah, they're not that big. They're, I've I've got very like athletic, athletic legs, kind of like the old bodybuilder type. I'm not I'm not like the Kai Green. I'm more like the Schwarzenegger. Like the Kai Green. Shout that out Kai, man. He's a listen. He's different gravy, man. Different gravy. Man's an man is an artist. He's not even a bodybuilder. He's a damn artist, to be honest. He is. He's an artist. Yeah. Um. Yeah. I just have that more kind of defined. Oh, look at the striations, like that kind of <laughs> horse meat looking leg. Um, yeah, the leg meat is, is, is unique. I love it. But um, no, I, I don't know. I just, I've always kind of just, maybe because I'm so short. Um, I just, I've worked well with squats. So yeah, 475 for 12. Got, ain't got shit on Kovacs, but you know, I'm working on it. Um, <laughs> you also don't weigh 330 pounds. Like, 
This is true. This is very true. Mams is Mams is large. Like Mams is a wall. <laughs> Mams is large. <laughs> I've only um I've only ever had five hundred and seventy five pounds worth of weight to be able to squat. So when I did like testing, I did five seventy five for uh, for for a single. Um, it was a challenge, but I feel like I definitely I feel like I definitely have five fifty in the tank for four or five reps. Um. So to kind of like. What's it going to take for me to go from 65 to 70? Yeah, probably. I, I, I would think maybe about, you know, 575, 600 for five squat. Probably like a four, 425, 450 for five bench. Mm-hmm. Somewhere around that mark. So not far by any means, but still like a way to go. Yeah. Um. And then shout out the bicep curl. I'd only ever, <laughs> I'd only ever hit one, you know, 135 pounds for a, a single in a bicep curl, and I would, I was never able to do it again. And then I put a little bit of a, a graft in this winter, and was like, oh, you know, I'll test it, shits and giggles, and went up to like what 175. I was like, oh, okay, gains, but you know. I think Reggie's like repping like 185 for like five, something like that. He has to. His arms are like, dude, all that every girl I've ever seen, oh my God, look at Reggie's arms. Oh, like, Reggie. Yes, Reggie's so yeah. hot. Like, I know. He's, yeah, he's, 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 he's the black milk. He's the black Mac Wilkins right now. Like, he's got the, the athleticism. He's got the face. He's just got to, once he figures this shit out and starts popping 70s like Mac, then we can give him the smack the title in there but <laughs> no but like even like uh Alora was like cheat curls are like the, the discus thrower's best friend and people don't utilize them enough no i mean i don't cheat curl I'm, I'm fairly strict with it but like i think a big big factor for me is is my ability to flick a disc i get a, a high revolution on it um mm-hmm. And that is in in part down to my ability to bicep curl. I'm just I'm very anal about it. Like, Maybe that's why I sucked at discus because I don't <laughs> own arms. Maybe no I should have been doing more curls. Yeah, I mean, try it out. See how see how it fares. I feel like there's the certain movements that are big performance indicators for me. Um, but that's for me to know. But um, <laughs> <laughs> I can't give you all the secrets. Um, but yeah. I think some some bicep variations are pretty good for me as performance indicators, um, and I just think transfer of training. There's you can specificity is interesting because you can you can be very generic, very basic, but still achieve a high level of specificity. Mm-hmm. And it's just so so overlooked, and I think that's a lot. What a lot of my time at Maryland was spent dealing with was a lot of lack of specificity. It's like we can still be generic, but we can still achieve specificity if we just do this correctly. Yeah. But it, it's it's difficult when your international athletes come in already kind of knowing a system that works for them. And the American mentality is, you know, you're going to come here, you're going to adopt our philosophy and our regime, and it's going to work. And if you challenge that kind of status quo, then you're seen as a problem. Uh-huh. So like, I, sp- I had a lot of time at Maryland kind of like tackling that kind of adversity. Um and and ultimately, like, I'm the only one that pays the price for it because I'm the one who doesn't throw to my, you know, absolute potential. Uh, I feel like with certain specificity measurements in place, I, I think I would have thrown 65 my junior year at least. But it just kind of is the way the way it is, and 
like I said, as long as you learn from it, it's not a complete waste. Uh-huh. So, yeah, bench, bench, squat, bicep curl, my three prime movers. That's dope. Uh, is there anything that you wanted to speak on specifically at all? Like, just any, like, I don't know, shameless plug. We're on, or it might as well, this is basically radio. Hit it with the shameless plug. Like, is there anybody that you want to, obviously you shouted out your dad because he's been, like, the beginning of the reign of the the English bear in the discus world. <laughs> um, no, not really. I don't really have, like, shameless plugs either. <laughs> Just out here doing me, you know. Actually, I just had a thought. You're. I wanted to ask you. Your brother is. You play soccer, right? Yes, yes, he does. I don't know soccer at all, so I can be American. <laughs> Where is he in the scheme of? So he had spent, oh, I think, about eight years playing for Arsenal. Oh, in the youth okay. academy. Um, and then obviously made it through scholarship and academy and all that kind of process. Um, and then had a preseason. Funny enough, Arsenal had a preseason in Maryland. As soon as I had left College Park, they flew and trained at our stadium. That's funny. Just small world. It was crazy. Um, so he went preseason with the first team, um, played with all of them, had a decent campaign out there, and then was bought from the league just under for a team called Brentford. Um, so he's playing for Brentford right now. And this is his second season coming up. So, yeah, he's in the, the professional circuit. Just turned 20. He's got the leg meat like me. He's got the shoulders. But he's obviously a lot a lot smaller, a lot leaner. Uh-huh. But he's, he's a horse in his own right. So. Oh, looks like athletics really run in your family, huh? That's something. Yeah, every single, like, I'm one of seven. Oh, wow, I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah, so on my dad's side, I'm one of seven. I have four older half-sisters, um, and then pretty much all of us at some point has been coached by my dad and taken part in something. My eldest sister had um, come, like, sixth in her age group for, like, the English schools one year or something like that. I hadn't, I didn't even know that until a few years ago. Um, so we've all kind of dabbled. My younger sister um, threw hammer and disc for for a number of years as well. She might get back into it at some point. We're not sure. We'll see. Uh-huh. Um, but yeah, yeah, we're all pretty pretty athletic in our own right. Yeah, because I I always look at like he just you know the top athletes in any any sport. And you find a lot of really odd connections. Like I was uh, a couple months ago listening to a podcast, and I didn't know that Judd Logan's—I think it was either his brother or his dad—played for the Steelers. It was either the Steelers or the seventy, the Forty Niners. And then one of his uncles was like an all like a not Hall of Famer, but like pro star, like defensive end or something. And I'm like. No wonder this guy was a tank. His whole family were all like freak. And I'm talking, this is when like football was not that football's not hard anymore, but like this was before like science and you know, like the concussion movie and all the pads and stuff. Like this was hardcore football. And they were like killing not killing people, but like killing the game. <laughs> and I'm like <laughs> yeah. and I look and I'm like, 
No wonder this dude's an ox. It's in his genes. Like, you look at the Krausers. I mean, Haley, Sam, and Ryan are all, like, obviously the, 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 four, the first two aren't throwing anymore, but they were both really good javelin throwers. Yeah, they were beasts. I mean, their, their dad and their uncle were both great shot and javelin throwers themselves. And, I mean, I'm pretty sure it goes back one more generation that their father, Ryan's grandfather, threw shot put, too. I mean, it's a... I mean, I feel like genetics is, I feel like you, if you look, you always find the lineage athletic. Like, it starts with one person, it just trickles down and it gets better as time goes on. Like, to, to a fault, obviously, but, like, I even look at, like, Rand, like Randall Cunningham was a, a quarterback for the Eagles in the 70s and 80s, and his daughter's, like, a, a crazy high jumper. Bashy's a crazy high jumper. Like, look at Michael Carter. His his daughter is like gold medalist. Like genetics are definitely like I always say. Obviously, like you know, there's a difference between being a genetic freak and having the genes to do something. Obviously, sometimes you know they meet in the middle, where like you get a Krauser or a you know, can't think of anyone else really. But like, Cougar Thompson. But yeah. you know, like listen, this listen. There's this guy from from. He's from uh, he's from that, that what are they called that Britainland or something. He's a pretty good discus thrower. Yeah, his name's uh, Tom Gregg's daughter or something like that. I don't oh, know. It's something name. around there. Yes. Something yes. around there. Yeah, but like, and then like, not to not to discredit because he's an amazing hammer thrower in his own right. But like, there's some people you just can't surpass your parents. I mean, if you look at Lipinoff Jr., he was still an 80, 81. But I mean, his dad was a Eighty-six meter thrower, like it's different though when you're you're kind of at the genetic limits. That's that's what I was saying. Where I was saying the his dad was it, the pinnacle. Yeah. Like you can't trickle down any farther than that. Like yeah, I mean, obviously, give or take your your own kind of take on that era and you know substance abuse and everything like that. But even still, drugs, <clears throat> drugs, drugs don't make the athlete. You know, it's, yeah. You say what you want about them, and obviously, you know, there's a zero tolerance policy from my end, but it's it, it only just speeds you up. You know, you still have to you still have to put in the grind. Like, I'm not I'm not crediting them anymore, but like, you have to be a, a unique kind of nutcase to want to take a drug that allows you to body bag yourself more times yeah. per week than you would clean. Like, I, I train three times a week. I, I go off. I go hard. And I need my rest. No, 100%. couldn't so imagine. As, as, as appealing as it might sound, like, oh, Greg, you get to watch yourself throw far, like, six times a week. But it's just like, dude, I just, I don't know how you lot can do it. I, you, like, you just have to take yourself to a different kind of place. Um, but, yeah, anyway, it's straight off topic. But it's just like... You know, aside from your your personal belief on on that matter, it's still like that is the furthest we can really go. Like that's our current ceiling. So is yeah. it really a fault to Livingston Junior if he doesn't really quite match his dad's shoes? No, I'd say he's he's pre-established and like all right, you know, he's not been a key player, but he's he's still done himself good justice. Mm-hmm. Um, it is, it is difficult though, for real. Like when, when you're really kind of surpassing, there's one thing like I would love the kind of 
have a kid and that kid be like the you know, third generation discus thrower. Like, oh, just be yeah. awesome. That's what I'm, that's how I am. I want my kids. I don't like, I don't care if it's if how many I have. One of them has to do track. Like, I just want to see one of them, one of them pick up a discus or a hammer or a shot put. I'd love to see the hammer, but like, if they were discus or shot, even javelin, like, I wouldn't be mad. But I want to see one of my kids try to do something similar to what I did or even do exactly what I did and see what happens with the next trickle down of the athleticism of whoever I end up having kids with and just see what happens with that. But I'm like so competitive to even to that point that like I still want to do something so far that like my kid just can't. <laughs> can't oh, I, would love to, I would love to do that. That'd be amazing. <laughs> That's kind of where I'm at. I'm like, you know, I want, I want to set a high ass ceiling. That way, the only way you could ever possibly beat it is you have to really be the shit. It's like, um, like being, it's like Scotty Pippen's kid. Like mm. you can't, you can't. Like I'm sorry, or like even even like Shaq's kids. I'm sorry, you can't live up to that reputation. Like if you do, listen, amazing for you. You're one of the all time greats. But those, like, that's like we're talking about the we're brushing the glass here at the top, mm. like. Exactly. There's only so many people that can, yeah, can kind of touch that ceiling. Uh, yeah, yeah, it's interesting. It's definitely interesting. But yeah, there's, there's just certain people that are just you can tell, like you're saying, just certain genetic precursors to oh. you know that kind of elite performance. It's like what, what right do I have, being a left-hander, left-footer, but manipulating my right leg to some kind of, you know magic and flicking a disc with my right hand like I can I can throw left-handed I've thrown 47 and a half meters left-handed with a 2k like caught the crap out of one I've thrown a 1k like 65 um but yeah it's just like it's just certain it's 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 kind of like what you said it's like would I would I be that good of a thrower still if I was just born right sided, or is there something unique about what I've got in the presence mm -hmm. of, like my my dad genetically, my dad's for for what he is for his dimensions, he was a freaking freak, like for someone who didn't really lift weights serious, only just did volume, like typical kind of bodybuilding little bits here and there, was so like heavy lifting averse just an absolute unit mm -hmm. and it's like maybe that is what's helped me a technically disadvantaged thrower being using my non-dominant side those kind of genetic precursors might be the differential or, or maybe you know I use my dominant side in a way that most people don't and I think that's why my technique is a bit more it's still bog standard but it's unique it's not something that most people do understand or can emulate. Yeah, no, I, like I find it simple. Yeah, no, one hundred percent. Like, not to get into too much of my personal life because I'm sure people who know me will listen to this. But um, when last you were here, some of some of some certain um, athletes attempted to emulate your style of throwing. And obviously, I didn't say anything because that's none of my business. What you want to do with your body and technique, you do you, man. Listen, everybody's someone, different. Someone in your circle? Yes. Oh, okay, yeah. You uh, you probably can guess who it is because we yeah, both yeah, know yeah. who he is. But 
I was talking to my roommate. I'm like, you can't like, I like, I was like, people. I feel like people don't, and I feel like <clears throat> this might be a thing with my generation. I don't really know, but I watched a lot of film, and I still do. And like, my thing is, you gotta, you gotta match what you have with who you watch, or should I say that vice versa? Who you watch should match what you have. Like, as soon as you were like, oh, yeah, I'm left-handed, left-footed, but I throw right-sided. I'm like, okay, that's not me because I'm right-dominant. But some people will see, oh, he threw a 65, so obviously I might be able to do it. But you got to, you got to, you know, it might start with an A and end with, a, end with a D, but the letters in between are the important part. You know what I mean? Like, you got you to gotta match what you have to who you watch. Like, I would never, I would never in a million years watch Hoffa technically. I watch it for entertainment because he's amazing. Like Hoffa's one of the, in my mind, one of the all time greats. But I have the legs of someone who's almost six foot seven. My legs are really long and I have a shorter torso. So there's no sense in me watching Hoffa. But if I look at, you know, Cantwell or Browser's kind of one of those again, I put him in that very unique category. He's like you can to it some people could try it. it don't think it would work for me, but I, I tried throwing very similar to Cantwell and obviously I'm not the best shot putter ever, but that was my, some of my better results. I mean, I was throwing in practice with a 6k, like 53, 54, like out of nowhere, like Christian, like Christian was just like, play with it, see what happens. And like, it was just, it was clicking and I'm like, Whoa, like, you know, and that was just for like, that was just for max that year. I think it was my sophomore, sophomore year. It was just for max. I'd throw a shot. And like, I think I threw like, 46 or 47 like obviously i'm not the greatest shot putter in the world but it's finding what matches you and i feel like a lot of athletes now kind of just look to the base archetype of like you're either mac wilkins jürgen schult um ryan harding like dakers stall like you gotta like there's there's more than like you know just you, you're you're big top guys if you look back and forth through time like you see so many different people move different and like if you really analyze that you can pick it apart and 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 find what works for you like i've my thing recently uh i was talking to dan hall from uh he was for, he was through Obama and then he went to kennesaw state for his fifth and i was talking to him and he was like yeah dude it's just your hips you got to move your hips like he was like i see your throws you're looking your mechanics are decent. He's like, but you got big shit you can fix to throw way, like add like five, 10 meters to you throw with just these two things. And I'm like, I never looked at it like that. And I start watching film like, oh, if you watch it really, really slow, you can see this turns and then you can catch it and push. And then like, you know, these things happen once you start talking to people and, and educating yourself about your event. You have to be a student of this event. This is not like, this isn't not to discredit distance runners, but this is like, it's not just, you get in, you train, you you watch the, the distance races for fun. Like obviously it, it's tactical, but it's not in my eyes, it's tactical but not technical. And you yes. come to our side of of the of the of the field of the stadium and where our events, you know, each throw is between, I don't know, one and three or four seconds, depending on how fast you move and what event you're watching. But there's so much technical nuance. There was a video of um, Brahim Days when he was a freshman going into a sophomore year. And he was talking about, you know, the throw is so complicated. There's 
thousands of, of little biomechanical changes and alterations and movements happening in such a small space that like it's just very it's very different from anything else you would see on the track you know what i mean yeah i feel that yeah i mean going back like even take it one step further with something you said about you know you try to emulate Cantwell. do you do you bench 660 for fun? exactly i don't i'm not i have no upper body strength so why like my upper body is super weak exactly so why are you wasting your time throwing i think that's that's interesting it's like you know, you, you can get a six foot seven dude who looks at, you know, little old me and says, you know what, I want to throw like Greg. As, as long as you, you understand what that should entail rather than what you want it to entail. Mm-hmm. Like, I see a lot of dudes, like, trying to emulate someone's wind-up. Like, the amount of people I see emulating Styles' wind-up or Cantor's wind-up or Harting's wind-up... Um, you know, the amount of people that I've now seen trying to emulate Tom Walsh's technique. And it's yeah. just like, people, people just think like, oh, like, you know, if, if I look the same... Yeah, like there's then, a secret to like, yeah. Yeah, and it's like, right, you're trying to do that. It's, it's like, it's like a caterpie trying to be a butterfree. It's like, you ain't got wings. Like, slow, slow down. Yeah. You, like, all right, you, you want to be Cantwell. Okay, where was Cantwell at when he was your age? Where was Cantwell at when he was at your training age? Exactly. What were the numbers like? So what does this allow him to do with the ball? You know, it, it's so much more than just, oh, well, this is what I see on TV is what throws for. So my technique doesn't look like that. So maybe I should adopt that technique. But you, to kind of credit brain, it's like you don't, you don't understand the thousand elements, the little nuances yeah. that, that, that make... There's certain things in my technique that you look at and everyone on the planet will absolutely read. Be like, I don't get why he does that. It's inefficient. Mm-hmm. I've had was, people say that to me about you before. I'm not going to lie. I've had a lot of people say that. Just by all means. Like, people could talk shit and you say all you want. But again, there's a, there's a number by my name now and it's like, well, there's something to it. But then, you know, you have a fair argument on your flip side saying, oh, well, you know, well, I still maintain that if he did this, then he would throw further. It's like, all right, fine. You, you might not ever find out. Yeah. Um, but, like, there's just so many, like, kind of lost my train of thought a little bit, but, like, yeah, there's, there's just so many stuff, like, there's so much stuff about me that, like, you would look at and you would absolutely ream. And, you know, the majority of people, you know, oh, that was it. I spoke to, speaking to Matty Denny um, the other day. He was doing, like, a kind of a bit of a webinar. Uh, and he was taking a few young kids and taking their videos for some analysis. And I just said, all right, you know, I'll throw my video in there for the melting pot just kind of see and he has this idea of you know creating more of a high point which is something i'm actually quite against yeah mm-hmm. he's like you know i think if you load this in at one position it enables your high point here your catch works here and you maintain a better delivery here and like you know the, the through line of it makes sense if i go to training though and, and completely try that like i understand the merit to it but i also understand why my body doesn't operate in that way yeah there's certain things that my body just won't accept and it's not just the 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 more your training age becomes is the more you realize what can work and what simply will not work yeah and and for me that high point is something that simply won't work and you know case in point like i was was storing today and you know i was adopting a bit of a high point just having some fun experimenting a little bit 
and and knowing where my force vectors are coming from and knowing what something feels right something feels wrong it's connected but not quite there or i'm never going to get it and i watched this bird fly into me at complete grass cutter level and i just said like you know what? i'm going to throw like that back to the old me and just whip the crap out of it uh-huh. and then you throw it like four or five meters further and it's just like you can't argue with nature sometimes you're nurtured to doing something so well that you actually learn how to make the best out of what seems like a bad situation. Yeah. And it's, it's not for you to try and change that. Um, like er- Everyone's trying to emulate, and it's like, just realize that all it is is a blueprint. You, Like you said, you have to make it your own. And that's where the simplicity comes from. What What is simpler than going with what is natural? There is exactly. anything else you're trying to do. Like if, if I'm me right now, and I'm trying to learn how to throw like Frederick Dakers, I'm going against my nature. It is an uphill battle. Whereas if I go with my absolute core, what is just innate to my body and my geneticism and all that, blah, 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 I'm simply just on top of a cliff and I just push a stone downhill. I don't have to do anything after that. I just watch it tumble and generate and generate and generate. That's what it is. It's, it's, it's very simple. People overcomplicate it because they're trying to find like the perfect myriad. They, they want that that perfect solution of sugar spice mm-hmm. and everything nice and it's like it's already there it, it starts and ends with you appreciate what they do as a biomechanical principle not as a technical model what are they trying to achieve biomechanically what are they trying to do to manipulate physics to to some end when you appreciate what that is okay how do i do that relative to my limb length you know my weight my density my perception my kinesthetic awareness my vestibular balance and all this stuff that's where you hone in on being the best you can be and that's why there's more than one way to skin a cat again it's, you've got to just appreciate the fundamentals and people think the fundamentals lie in the visual aesthetic and it is, it's not the case there's certain things that Frederick does that i think are wonderful i cannot do them yeah for one reason or other and it's like, okay, but I understand what he's trying to achieve. All right, bet. I was with Coleman one time in um, at Maryland. And he had this philosophy on what I should do in my mid-phase. And I'm, I'm listening to him. Like, it just doesn't, I get what you're saying, but like, this is just so fundamentally off for me. So I just sat back and I just said, all right, what is the end goal? What are you trying to achieve here? What's the principle? He said this. I said, oh, all right, well, this is how I would do it. He said, all right. Show and prove. Literally the next row, bang, two meters up from the session. And we just stayed in that zone the entire day. It's like, you figure out what works for you to mimic the fundamental principles, not the visual aesthetic. But yeah, I mean, I, I know you've definitely heard a lot of people that have, have talked smack about me. And, and, you know, it's all constructive. Like, everyone wants to be the reason why someone's successful. And I, I get it. And everyone's trying to prove that they know enough and know better than the next guy. So yeah, it kind of it comes with the territory. It's fine, but it's like if if that's the case, then why aren't your athletes doing bits? Exactly. Like exactly. you can you can talk all you want because you know you took that one course at your level one, and you know you're a certified coach now. But you know no amount of accreditation can amount to actually having done did it. Mm-hmm. I I've I... done did it. <laughs> so. Uh, listen, I don't think it could be said any better than that. Honestly, that's, yeah, that's it. I mean, that was, yeah. 
it's it's funny to me. It's, it makes me laugh because, like, my whole career, like, I was having this conversation with someone a while back. My whole career has always been, like, more people looking at me and saying, this is wrong. You shouldn't be doing this. Why are you doing that? Like, this don't work. And, you know, you, it'd be in your best interest to do this and blah, blah. Everyone's quick to tell me where I'm going wrong. Uh-huh. At no point have you ever showed me why what I'm doing is right. Yeah. I respect the person who comes up to me and says, you know what? I actually took the time to understand your technique and this is actually why it works. You taught me something. Thank you. I still maintain that this is the better thing for you to do, but I'm richer for the experience uh-huh. rather than just, well, this is what I think the fundamental principles of throwing are. You're not in line with that. So you're, you're wrong for doing it. And, and then that aid up that, that old kind of passage of like, Oh, you've thrown 65 doing that. Well, imagine if you just cleaned up this, you'd be 67, 68 in no time. Oh, yeah. Yes. Yeah, that simple. Cool. All right. Cool. Yeah. I'll consider it. It's like, I'm, I'm not really going to take anyone too seriously. You just come with that approach. Like, uh-huh. I've spent enough time. I've spent enough time, especially in my youth career, listening to other people. Once I started getting to that point where it's like, you know what? I, I'm kind of, you know, a nation top five. I'm, I'm not known, but like, you know, there's a, there's a following. I, I spent a lot of time listening to other people straying away from what was true to me. And it was always about, you know, this is shit and your crap and this ain't good enough and blah, blah, blah. And lo and behold, there might be like a small ounce of validity to it. And I might improve half a meter in a short space of time. But then when things just started to stagnate, all I did was go back to my roots. And I, I would jump up five, eight meters and just be like, why did I even waste time listening to all this crap? It's like, there's just something that just worked for me and... You know, I'd rather spend my time around people who promote what I do have and and show me that it's something worth investing in rather than looking at every excuse as to say, like, oh, it's not good enough. Oh. Like you, I, I, you know, I'm a, for all intents and purposes, I'm officially a world-class disc restorer. You, you can, no one can ever take that off away from me. Oh, 100%. I would agree with you, definitely. So it's, I don't need that kind of negativity. I'm happy for people to be like, oh, I think you should do this. But come to me with at least some level of introspection and assessment and be like, I've actually looked at you and this is why you work well. Dane was one of the first people, shout out Dane again, he's a real one. Dane was like, you know what, I freaking love this dude's technique. However, this is why I love it. This is where I think it could be better. This is what I think works for him. And then he, he kind of weighs it on both sides. He's like, on one hand, like I could, you can make the argument this allows him to do this. Do I think this is the best way? It might work for him. I'm not sure. But hey, you know, like a, a, a well-balanced argument. I have a lot of time for people like that. Mm-hmm. More, so than, more so than that, you know, national level one who just wants to prove himself. No, it's yeah, like, I got you. A lot of people, especially in the collegiate sense, a lot of people take pride off of taking already great athletes and making them yeah and 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 not really making them anything more like i i don't care if you took a kid let's throw a random number out there if you took a kid who threw the one six say 220 in high school and you know over the course of four years that probably equates to about 200 feet with the 200 feet 195 with the 2k 
you take a 195 200 prospect and you make them throw 205. World standards 215, 213. Yeah. Uh -huh. So uh, I don't really, that doesn't entice me, it doesn't excite me. But that's that's just the story with a lot of these collegiate coaches. No, yeah, I, 100%. I agree. Yeah. So it's like everyone's got their foot in the door and there's a shitload of ego. But then when you really break it down, like all these people, where do they go after the fact? Uh -huh. They're already not emotionally invested because they're just doing it for free education and they, you know, yeah. bugger off and go into the big wide world with their new good jobs and everything like that. Uh -huh. So, so many of my peers are just going to. I say this with all due respect. I'm good for them, and they're doing exactly what they want to do, but wasting their talent. Quote, no, I know, I know what you mean. Yeah, I understand. Um, yeah, and and it's in large because of just that coaching philosophy of like, I'm going to make you better, and it's like not really. You're just kind of exploiting what they already have. Yeah, as long as no, you don't break, as long as you don't break them, you're going to be successful. Yeah, that's what it comes down to. So, mm -hmm. yeah. All right. Well, it was uh, it was good getting a chat with you, Greg. Um, what's your what's your uh, your Instagram? What's your what is it? Oh, so <laughs> a lot of people get it wrong. I don't understand. Like bloody Americans. So it's it's Grizzle underscore GT. Um, but for some reason, people pronounce it as like Grizzly. Like the amount of Americans I've had to come up to me and like, oh yeah, Grizzly, and I'm like, no. it's, it's it's Grizzle, but yeah. Grizz, grizzle E, Grizzly, like, what, what? Really? That's so, Yeah. So, <laughs> Grizzle, Grizzle underscore GT. Um, that's about it. That's the only one I'm really like, kind of active on. Like, mm -hmm. I'm not really hella active on Twitter. I kind of yeah. more just retweet social injustice. Um, gotcha, gotcha. I'm, I'm kind of working on Twitter a little bit, but it's just, Instagram's just kind of where it's at for me. Yeah. All right. Well, we got his handle. Give him a follow. Greg, it was great talking to you. Likewise, buddy. It was a pleasure. I'll see you soon. Yeah. All right.